0: Hello and welcome to the 23rd episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hip Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, the biggest news is the surge in cases. Once again, we're seeing upwards of 50,000 new infections a day, with hospitalizations rising and deaths approaching 1,000 on some occasions. And this trend is happening in more than 80% of states. In response, governors are ratcheting up the restrictions on people, but adherence seems to be moderate at best. In parallel to the US rise, we've seen huge increases in the number of cases across Europe, now averaging close to 80,000 cases per day. And this is very worrisome to leaders there since they assumed the virus was under control, even in nations that in March and April had very high rates of transmission. In response to the exacerbation, Paris has put in place a nighttime curfew, and various countries across Europe are severely limiting indoor gatherings. Hospitals in different nations are again fearing being overwhelmed with demand, although public health officials are hopeful that since many of the people now being infected are younger, that the need for critical care treatment will be lower than it was in the early months of this pandemic. Another interesting medical development over the past week came from a huge 11,300 adult World Health Organization WHO study on remdesivir. Consistent with other studies, this multinational review found that there were no reductions in deaths, need for ventilators, or even reduced hospital length of stay between those patients who received this expensive medication and those who did not. As such, more than a half year into the pandemic, we have no effective treatments that reduce a person's chance of dying when infected outside of steroids that we talked about in the last podcast, which is only used for certain select extremely ill individuals.
0: What has happened on the drug and vaccine front?
1: Jeremy, this is, I'd say, more bad, but I don't want to emphasize predictable news. First, Johnson & Johnson halted its COVID-19 vaccine trials due to an unexplained illness in one of the study subjects. The company refused to elaborate on what the illness was, and as such, we can't discern how serious it might be. And on the same day, Eli Lilly stopped its clinical trial of an antibody treatment similar to the one President Trump received when he was hospitalized at Walter Reed. The company said that there were potential safety concerns putting these setbacks with those of other vaccine developers, we can reach three conclusions. The first is that an area as vital as this one, by which I mean vaccine development and treatment modalities, the approach of drug companies to tout the smallest positive outcome and seemingly hide the details about failures, I believe it's very problematic and needs to be addressed. Given that the US has paid billions of dollars to obtain access to these medications when they are FDA approved, all Americans deserve to know the details and the truth. And we don't have that today. The second conclusion is that most likely It will be far longer than many pundits profess before we are able to either stop the spread of the virus or minimize the consequences. The third conclusion is that our nation's strategy to ending this pandemic seems increasingly to be based more on hope
0: and chance than objective data and strategic planning. Each show, we try to provide at least one positive piece of news. What was it from the past week?
1: Last week, Dutch researchers found that the incidence of premature births has dropped significantly since COVID-19 began. The exact reason is unclear, but the data they published in the Lancet Public Health Journal seems to be scientifically valid and conclusive. And not only is that positive in the context of the current pandemic, but it holds promise to offer insights into how to lower this obstetrical danger for women overall in the future. This finding of reduced incidence of premature birth mirrors similar studies performed in Denmark and Ireland. Although the numbers are known, the exact reason for this improvement remains uncertain. One theory holds that the cleaner air and better hygiene that has come from social lockdown and personal protection is the reason. Another ties the improvement to diminished maternal stress, particularly for women of higher socioeconomics who've been able to work from home rather than having to commute as they might have in the past due to the social distancing requirements and the use of virtual conferencing.
0: Robbie, we've been interested in what's been happening on college campuses since they reopened. What have we seen?
1: Jeremy, the most interesting development is not something totally unexpected, but what you and I have talked about as a seemingly predictable outcome. And that is that recommendations and frequent testing alone don't produce the results many hoped or even expected in this 18 to 22-year-old group. As an example, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign had a powerful program of twice-weekly testing for all of its 40,000 students and a requirement to demonstrate through a smartphone app, a negative status in order to enter any building on campus. A computer model predicted tremendous success, but it assumed that all students would follow the protocols and the restrictions. And it's not hard to guess what went wrong. Students continue to socialize and party even after testing positive and others found a way to circumvent the testing requirements altogether. In the context of a virus that has a very low mortality for college age students, full compliance seems nearly impossible to achieve, and super spreader events like fraternity parties only need a single person to infect a dozen others who will then spread it far and wide.
0: Robbie, many college students Uh, will be returning home for the holidays. And uh, in what I have found to be the most talked about piece of news in regards to the virus in the last few weeks among the average person, Dr. Fauci urged people to scale back their Thanksgiving plans and family get-togethers, limiting them to those already living in their immediate household. Uh, Some of the people I've heard were fine with this. Some said they're just going to ignore it. And other people were absolutely enraged that it was even suggested. Um, the holidays are an often difficult time for people unable to travel and see family and friends anyway. If people avoid seeing friends and family over the holidays as maybe their tradition, this could have a serious effect on people's mental health. Um, What are your thoughts on what Dr. Fauci said? Do you think people will listen? And how would it affect people's mental health?
1: When it comes to the coronavirus, it often feels like Deja vu all over again. The same lessons are having to be learned again and again and again. We tend to leap to the conclusion rather than starting where I believe we should, which are the facts. You may remember back in March and April, we talked a lot on this show, Coronavirus the Truth, about are not the number of people a person with COVID-19 will infect under, and this is key, normal social circumstances. And that number is three, which leads to exponential growth. But we also said that under more intense gatherings, the number of people infected by one individual goes up. And as we've seen in some situations, It can soar, and that is the risk of Thanksgiving. If we step back and look at the data, what should happen is that we must avoid large gatherings, the kind of 20 or 30 people who used to come together and spend time in close proximity, often cooking together. Those are the kind of situations in which one person could spread it to large numbers of people. We need to try at the celebration itself to maintain as much social distance as possible. And when weather permits, to stay outside. Hosts should be cautious if people are coming from geographies with high rates of infection. And every attendee needs to cancel if they are having symptoms consistent with this disease particularly any type of fever or severe cough or difficulty breathing putting the pieces together dr fauci is right to worry but as we said on coronavirus the truth I at least believe that the Pareto principle is how we need to be thinking about this pandemic in the broadest context. What are the 20% of things that we can do that will provide 80% of the protection? And how can we avoid the 20% of things that will lead to the 80% chance of greatest spread? Each family needs to consider the facts. They need to think about the risks. And I would encourage them to focus on how they can protect those that they love the most, whether by masking, social distancing, hand washing, limiting the number of participants, or finding ways to keep the group separated, and hopefully being outside.
0: What's currently happening economically in the country?
1: Jeremy, there's a fascinating article published in JAMA, the Journal of the AMA, by David Cutler and Lawrence Summers. Cutler is an economist at Harvard, and Summers is the former director of the National Economic Council under President Clinton. They concluded that COVID-19 is the greatest threat to prosperity and well-being in the United States since the Great Depression. In total, their analysis placed the projected cost from COVID-19 at $16 trillion. Half of that due to direct costs of treatment, reduced economic productivity, and elevated unemployment. The other half they attributed to death with reduced economic productivity, medical impairment following the disease, and diminished quality of life as a consequence of becoming infected and having long-term symptoms. They note that the incidence of depression and heightened anxiety in the United States is now 40% of the population compared to 11% previously. Although this study makes many assumptions around the cost of a human life and the economic value of diminished quality of life, the hard numbers are consistent with what other economists have concluded, and that is at least an $8 trillion hit on the American economy. Although the stock market may have what is called a V Z-recovery, fast down and fast up. That won't be the experience of most Americans. Increasingly, people are talking about a K-recovery, with those in the white-collar jobs and higher socioeconomic status having minimal negative consequences, but those in lower paying, more manual jobs, small businesses getting hit very, very hard. Along those lines, AMC, the world's largest movie theater company, said that it might run out of cash by year's end if it can't raise additional funds. They report that currently attendance is down 85%. It's becoming increasingly clear that without government assistance by Congress, that the current economic travails of our country will exacerbate, and elected officials are discussing that literally as we re- recording this podcast, how much damage will be done, and whether short-term fixes will have major long-term negative consequences for the American economy remains debated by elected officials.
0: Robbie, so much of the future revolves not only around effective and safe vaccine development, but also people's willingness to take it. Any new insights?
1: Jeremy, a new nationwide survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is unconnected to Kaiser Permanente, showed major resistance among Black adults, despite this being the group that is most vulnerable for severe disease and death. When asked if a coronavirus vaccine that was determined by scientists to be safe and made available to people for free would be one they would take, among the 777 Black U.S. adults surveyed, only 17% said definitely yes, 33% probably yes, But 22% said probably not, and 27% said definitely not. That's half of those surveyed who would either definitely refuse or most likely refuse. And I want to emphasize, despite assurances by scientists, and no cost constraints. Even more concerning was the magnitude of the resistance among those most at risk. Just 20% of Black people with a serious health condition said they would definitely take a reportedly safe, free vaccine. And interestingly, only 24% of individuals with a healthcare worker in their home said that they would take it, and only 25% of Black seniors. Clearly, knowledge of past discrimination and systemic racism is present, but equally, problematic is the current experience of many. The percentage of Black people who report discrimination in healthcare to be commonplace has increased from 56% in 1999 to 70% today.
0: Any more data on the psychological consequences from our nation's effort to control the spread of COVID-19?
1: New data from WeWork and this was an anonymous survey, demonstrated major discomfort coming from continued social isolation. They looked specifically at people who currently are working. And overall they found that there's been a 17% decline in people's ability to maintain social relationships, during this time of virtual meetings and social distancing. Of interest, two groups were affected at a significantly higher rate than even this one in six overall average. For those individuals with strong ties to colleagues, their major friends came through work they reported a decline of 26%. And interestingly, for workers who struggle in their overall life socially, have difficulty with friendships, the decline was also 26%. Phrased differently, both for people with good social relationships outside work And without strong ties inside the work environment, the impact was relatively minimal, but it wasn't non-existent. But in contrast, for those individuals with strong contacts or those people who struggle socially in their life, losing the connectedness of the workplace has been extremely painful with one in four reporting significant discomfort from the continued social isolation.
0: On fixing healthcare, our first guest for season five was Zubin Damania, better known as Z Dog MD. He talked about physician culture. How do you see it impacting COVID nineteen and our nation's response?
1: Jeremy, the physician culture will be the focus of the book I will be publishing this spring. In it. I point out the virtues of the physician culture, particularly in times of crisis. As an example, in the early months of COVID-19, doctors and nurses provided medical care to those infected, both in the emergency room and the hospital, in a selfless fashion. They put the needs of patients ahead of their own lives. As I note in the book, they donned garbage bags for smocks, and salad lids for facial shields. These frontline soldiers look more like a ragtag militia than a properly equipped army. And yet this same culture that led them to do everything in their power to save a human life also led to an elevated mortality for patients with chronic disease. Data from New York City showed that 88% of people who died from COVID-19 had two or more chronic diseases. And the reality is that as many as half of those chronic diseases could have either been prevented or cared for more effectively and successfully before this coronavirus came ashore, but it wasn't. The reason was the medical profession's lack of prioritization of prevention and seeing physician activities that avoid disease in the first place or limit the, the frequency of complication, not to be as valuable as those actions that lead to intervention, Unblocking an occluded vessel to the heart or brain is revered. Reversing a heart attack or stroke while it is happening is the zenith of medical care. But avoiding it in the first place is not given similar status. Part of the reason is that it's not quite as exciting or dramatic. Some of it is the fact that you need to treat an entire population of people to help avoid these types of problems in a small segment. And you never can be sure who benefits the most from your actions and who otherwise would have been okay. So you never get the tremendous feedback and satisfaction that comes from saving a life in times of crisis As a result, we created an opportunity for this virus to inflict significant impact, critical disease, and death among a population, many of whom didn't need to be as susceptible to this type of negative, severe impact. On the show, Zubin did a superb job of highlighting both the triumphs of the physician culture and the failures, I would encourage listeners to tune into the show on the Fixing Healthcare podcast that they can find on Apple and Spotify. Jeremy, when it comes to innovation, what we see is that there's often an overly enthusiastic initial response, followed by a period of despair when the innovation fails to deliver the outcomes promised, and then ultimately the pendulum reaches equilibrium. Among the people you speak with, when it comes to coronavirus treatment and vaccine development, do you believe they're being overly optimistic? Too pessimistic? Or do you feel as though they've reached a scientifically-based objective understanding and analysis?
0: Honestly, I think there is a pretty wide range. I personally know people everywhere on that spectrum. I do think that the longer the virus goes on like this and economic restrictions and everything, the more pessimistic people get. And even people I know that were optimistic at the beginning during the, you know, 15 days to slow the spread era – who are now disheartened due to how long it's gone on, how it has affected their jobs, how it's affected their children's schooling. I see more and more people on that despair and pessimistic side of the fence. And if people avoid family get togethers over the holidays, I think many, many more will end up on the side of despair. I think this disruption of things people find joy in, in their careers is honestly making people uh, more bitter at the people making the regulations and suggestions. And this angst against the government and scientific community will uh, only cause many to just ignore regulations and suggestions. Uh, I think honestly, more than anything, people need a major spark of hope and soon We need to see and understand the finish line and uh, what it takes to get there.
1: Along those lines, do you believe people are becoming more open to being vaccinated once a vaccine is FDA approved? Or do you see resistance growing?
0: I would say resistance is definitely growing. Uh, People are worried that a vaccine is being rushed out and it may not be as safe or effective as promised. Uh, Actually, a young woman I know who told me she would ref- or a young woman i know told me she would refuse to take it if she felt it was rushed out as she's worried it could cause birth defects when she starts to try to have children uh, she told me she would rather risk getting a virus that she would likely recover from just fine rather than the unknown you know whether her fear is founded or not many people have similar feelings they want to wait until the vaccine has been available for a while and has been bis- uh, and has been distributed to the masses to see if there's any you know, side effects or anything like that and see how effective it is. And I think a lot of people will avoid getting it uh, when it's first available. Robbie, in your Forbes article, you talked about 500,000 people dying from COVID-19. Listeners wanted to know more about this number and how you derived it. Can you tell them?
1: Jeremy, my approach was to assume that the current number of deaths which by the way are markedly less than the initial phases of the pandemic, would continue at the current rate. On one hand, that could be an overstatement, assuming the virus mutates for the better or a miracle treatment is found. On the other hand, most policy experts worry, and we've talked about it, that with winter coming and people becoming more confined indoors, that the transmission may rise rapidly as the newest data is showing, and as a consequence, hospitalizations and deaths increasing as a result. I also assume that an effective vaccine that the majority of Americans would receive wouldn't be available until after next summer or sometime in the fall. I assume that based upon statements by vaccine manufacturers, and leaders like Dr. Fauci, who talked about why distribution not being around possibly until the very end of 2021. Of course, it's possible it could happen earlier, but given the setbacks we talked about at the start of today's show, it also could be later. As such, half a million deaths wasn't a prediction as much as a calculation if we assume 750 deaths a day, that translates into over 22,000 a month. Assume that it continues until the end of 2021, and we're likely to see close to 280,000 additional individuals dying. Add that to the 220,000 who have already passed from this disease, and 500,000, half a million individuals, is the most likely estimate as distressing as the total may be, and as much as we would prefer to have the number much lower.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message to Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening and have a great day.